Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Lauren Remillard is the president and CEO of the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce. He's been with the organization since 1997 and has a great perspective on the importance of small business to our communities. I think what's shifted isn't that we don't care about profit, it's how do we go about generating that profit as sustainably, as responsibly, and as value-based as possible. I sat down with Lauren to talk about business profits and social impact, national trends in entrepreneurship, and the intricate relationship between healthy communities and a thriving business sector. Because succeed or fail, either way, we do it together. Thank you for listening to Because and Effect. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and we're now joined in studio by Lauren Remillard, President and CEO of the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce. Lauren, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today, hopefully. We'll see where we get going. But for people who don't really understand what a Chamber of Commerce does, like I did before I had to look it up and kind of figure it out, just give me sort of the general gist of what the what your what your mandate is and what you guys hope to do here in Winnipeg. Well, first, I know when I started working at the Chamber, my kids asked what what it was and they thought it was a bank and, and most people if they don't know the Chamber of Commerce just for some reason think we're a bank. Um, fundamentally the Chamber of Commerce is one of the oldest business organizations uh, really worldwide uh, and we are a worldwide network and fundamentally the role of a Chamber of Commerce, our Chamber, is to support our members, the business community, really three main roles and that's of course advocating for policy at various levels of government that will have a beneficial effect on the economic climate for investment, for growth. Um, that's why a lot of people will know the Chamber by, say, seeing us on TV or reading a comment in the newspaper regarding legislative changes and so forth. Uh, second really is providing business support to our members. So program services that help them either network or connect with potential suppliers to assist their business. Uh, so really those programs, cost-saving programs in particular, that will provide a financial benefit to those organizations. And, and lastly, and one that we're very proud of and that I don't think we get enough, uh, we, we can do a much better job talking about is really the community leadership aspect. Um, for example, in 1965, it was the Winnipeg Labor Council and the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce that came together to form the United Way, of course, in partnership with the, uh, the province. Um, Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, an initiative of the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce. Winter Wonderland, uh, many Winnipeggers and Manitobans and guests to our province have enjoyed, of course, this wonderful winter park. It was really the brainchild of one of our volunteers that had seen something similar in another jurisdiction and brought it back to the chamber saying, we should do something for our community like this. So that's a big part of Chamber of Commerce, of providing those uh, that community leadership. Very cool. Yeah, like, I want to talk about all three of those aspects. Uh, but first, just tell me, how did you get into this role? Like, how did you sort of, when did you start with the Chamber? How did you rise the ranks? And, and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a long story. I don't know if it's a particularly interesting one. But uh, my background, uh, I have a master's degree in political studies. It's always been a passion of mine. Actually, when I was in university, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And because I thought, well, most elected officials have law degrees. So it just seemed to be the politician's degree. Right. Um, but fundamentally, uh, graduated with that and really drawn to the nonprofit association world. Uh, I'm a big believer that you can work anywhere, but fundamentally you want to work at a place that you believe in and that you feel is making a difference in the community. Um, might sound a little hokey, but I still remember my school motto, the school I went to, St. Boniface Diocesan, was I'm a gifted individual willing to contribute to a caring community. And Yes, it's a motto, but it was really drilled into us that we have a role to play and be it in our work and our personal lives, give back to the community, do something. Mm -hmm. You have skills and, and, and experiences, uh, make something of it. So uh, definitely drawn to the, the business community. My father was a small business owner and was very passionate about entrepreneurialism. And the opportunity came to start as public affairs manager at the chamber back in 97 and uh, worked there seven years. And then I had an opportunity with the federal government and I left for 10 years doing various uh, roles. 
And again, even there, a lot of the causes I cared very deeply about were the departments that I ended up in. Started off with uh, now Indigenous Services Canada, um, moved to Health Canada, and then Environment Canada. So a lot of the areas that I was very passionate about, very selective in, in where I wanted to work. I uh, had the opportunity, Dave Angus was present at the time, a uh, great friend of mine, great mentor. Uh, opportunity came back, came to come back to the chamber and came back as vice president and then... Uh, the rest became president in July 2016. Seems like a good fit then because of all the path that you've taken, right? The, the Those three main tenets of the chamber you've kind of experienced all throughout your career so far, and now you're in a position to really oversee all three of them and make sure they're all getting done. Absolutely. You know, when I, when I look back on my career, I want to be able to point to something tangible that, you know, I move the needle in some regards. Um, you know, it's it's rare that people have the opportunity to make global impact. Mm -hmm. uh, there are those individuals, of course, but rather than trying to say, where can I hit the home run? I guess I was just more focused on where can I help that tomorrow's gonna be a better day than yesterday because of this little bit of, that I was able to contribute. So within the context of our city, where what what's the needle that you're focusing on right now to, to, to move a little bit? As a chamber? Uh, personally and professionally. Well, definitely. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons to be very uh, excited and optimistic about the direction of our city. Um, you know, I when I graduated from university, of course, this was during some one of the dips in, in our history. Uh, we were seeing boarded up buildings in on Portage Avenue. There was, of course, you know, we've heard the jets left and that seemed to really dampen the spirit that was Winnipeg. And and I, I, I see it. I feel it. And I think a lot of Winnipeggers are seeing the renaissance, the, the upward trajectory that our city's on. And it can be, it's manifested in so many different ways. Uh, I like to look and say, look at the construction that's going on in our downtown. And, and really our downtown's the heart of our community. We're seeing unprecedented levels of investment. And why that should give Winnipeggers a lot of um, sense of we're going in the right direction is business doesn't make half a billion dollars investments on a, I hope this works out. They've done their homework. They've done their homework and they see that this is a city on the rise. And I know when I speak to my counterparts across uh, Canada, um, I know in, in one jurisdiction, I, I, won't name, I won't name the city of Toronto, but uh, there's been some reports that are suggesting a significant number of millennials are not just contemplating leaving Toronto, but leaving Ontario because of the, you know, before, maybe 10 years ago, home ownership was, was difficult For sure. to aspire to. Now it's, it's almost a pipe dream. And I think we're seeing the rise of what we call the mid-city, where younger people are looking, going, not only can I buy a home there, I can have a successful career, I have a quality of life unparalleled. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I need to take a look at Winnipeg. So um, definitely the cause that really passionate about now is the future of our city, mm -hmm. being able to contribute to all those various factors that are fueling this rise. And again, for me, I'm very passionate about the job I do. It's um, it's not just something that, oh, okay, here's an opportunity. Uh, it had to align with my personal sense of values, my personal values, my principles, and my belief that here's a great opportunity to make a contribution to that, that growth. And I see it every day in our members. Uh, very passionate people um, put so much on the line to start a business. I don't think the average person really truly appreciates the significant risk it takes to be an entrepreneur yeah you go it on a limb like you're putting it all up really if you fail then what you know yeah. and i saw it with my parents again when they started their business you know you leverage the vehicle you leverage the house yeah. uh you leverage everything what was the business that they're in uh, it was a clothing store okay, cool. uh, mr dan's menswear if anyone uh, remembers it was out in uh, on saint mary's avenue right across from christ the king church uh to this day i run into people when i tell them my dad's store they're like oh yeah i remember mr dan's menswear Wicked. um and again, I saw the contribution, and we'll probably get into it, but one of the issues I, was very, I am very passionate about is immigration. Mm. My dad employed a number of new Canadians, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s, um, because he, just, he recognized the value that they brought 
to his particular business, but to the community as well. So kind of planted a seed for one of my passions. Very indeed. cool. So when you, you, you mentioned the members, I read some were 20, over 2,100 members. or 2,100 members from crazy. all sizes, all sectors. So we have the mom and pop shops and we have the large multinationals. And what makes the chamber unique in that regard, because there's other business organizations, but they tend to either represent a sector or a particular size of business, um, whereas we have them all. Are you noticing any commonalities between them? Well, in terms of the challenges, definitely. Yeah. Uh, access to capital is something that we've been hearing more and more about, and it has, I would say it's in the top two issues that business is saying to us, that they want to grow, they want to expand, they want to hire more people, but they don't have the capital to be able to fuel that growth. And in part with that, the second biggest, or the number one issue, of course, is talent attraction and retention. Mm. Uh, we are in a global fight for the best minds. And make no mistake about it, uh, Winnipeg's not an island unto itself on this one. Um, you know, I talked to some of the leaders within the tech industry, and they're saying, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we were competing amongst ourselves for, you know, Red River College graduates, U of mm. M graduates, and, and other post-secondaries. Today, you know, the Googles, the Amazon, Silicon Valley's up here recruiting our best and brightest. And that's the reality we face today. And uh, more and more companies saying, great, not only do I not have the access to the capital, I don't have the human capital to fuel my growth. So what of the three main tenets will affect that outcome the most? Like, do you want to make sure that it's a, the, the high quality of life? Do you want to make sure these businesses understand that they can give you know, young recruits, good lives, or is it a political thing? Like, or is it all three that to keep people here and to, or, or invite people here from out of town? It, it's all, it's, it's everything. Um, I know in speaking with employers, um, you know, it's, we've seen such a significant change in the nature of hiring today. When I was applying for jobs as a person in their early twenties, I won't tell you how old I am now, but okay. that was a few decades ago. Um, you know, you'd ask questions related to you know, what are the benefits? What's the p salary? Today, you're, you're hiring people, and the first question is, what are your values? Yeah. What are you giving back to the community? Uh, what's, what's your workplace wellness approach? Um, where do you volunteer? How do you support employees' personal growth? It, it, it's, and of course, salary and benefits, part of that conversation, mm -hmm. but what constitutes an employer of choice today has fundamentally changed. It's not really just what's the job. No. It's like what's the culture that this organization embodies. Yeah. yeah. And so that is something definitely an employer can control within. It doesn't require government policy change. And I think you're seeing a lot more employers. Uh, you know, they really do care when they're noted as one of the top employers in the province uh, because it means that they're, they're doing something well. Uh, they're attracting the best and brightest. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Another survey I'd seen, people have a tendency to talk about our weather. And I know a number of years ago, weather was a major consideration for people as they looked at which community do I want to move and start my family. Now, actually, I mean, weather's still an issue. People want to move to nice climates. But it's arts and culture has actually risen. And I wouldn't say arts and culture specific, but to what extent is your city or community have a thriving, uh, a sense of vibrancy, a thriving arts and culture community because they recognize its contribution to the quality of life. And they want to move to a community where, great, I know I can get a great job, but the, the community... What can which, I do after the job's done? Yeah. Where can when, I go? What done, can I see? Yeah. Uh, I want to be downtown and have this energy and, and excitement. And, you know, I, and I feel that anyone that's participated in First Fridays in the Exchange District, you walk around. I, m I remember the first time I walked around. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing, the energy and seeing foot traffic. And not once did I ever, the issue of safety ever come to my mind. All that came to my mind was, I wish we could have this Monday to Sunday. Yeah. Every day, seven days a week. So what, like, what is the biggest hurdle to getting the people who don't, think the downtown is safe or the people who are worried that wow that's you know it's not really our city that is capable of that how do we how do we bridge that gap for the non-believers to understand that this is the potentials here the, we have the capabilities we have the people we have the resources but we need buy-in 
Well, and again, I know it seems to be like a, a fallback position, but there's there's so many pieces to the puzzle. We, we do have to recognize and acknowledge there is legitimate safety concerns that exist, not just in our downtown, but anywhere you live in our city. Um, and that's the reality for any large major urban center. We're not alone in mm -hmm. that. Um, I think we can we have the advantage of being able to see some of the experiences of some of the other larger centers and learn from them and, and why you're seeing things like the downtown safety partnership emerge because we've seen the experiences in other jurisdictions. Um, I definitely, you know, business has a role to play in terms of where it's choosing to make its investment. You think about True North Square. What was there before? I couldn't even tell you. It was a parking lot. Yeah, exactly. A parking lot. So, Great for the cars, and I own cars, so I'm not. This is not an anti-car slag whatsoever. But there was no activity; it was dead space. Now, you have not only people uh, mixed-use development where you got office and residential. You have the new Hargrave Market that is drawing people into that area. So, by business investment you're creating that vibrancy, that sense of destination. Mm -hmm. People need a reason to go downtown. I go downtown because I work downtown, but I'm also a theater subscriber, and we're downtown on a regular basis attending various functions at the theater. And then, of course, it's, it's date night for my wife and I and our friends, and we do restaurants. And the more time I spend downtown, the more I, the safety issue just isn't um, as acute for me um, the more time I spend there. But also, um, you know, there's policy changes that need to happen and continually conversation with all levels of government. Uh, we need more people downtown. That fundamentally um, is, is going to be a big driver. And we've seen it in other jurisdictions. The more feet on the street, the more safety. And I hearken back to my comment about First Fridays. Yeah, for sure. It, and it's a, it's... I find that a lot of times when we have things like that or Nuit Blanche or whatever you want to point to, people say, this doesn't even feel like Winnipeg or, you know, the new fort, the new common down at the Forks. This doesn't feel like Winnipeg. So how, like, when is it going to feel like, yeah, actually, this is Winnipeg, you know? Yeah, and it's unfortunate that that stereotype of what Winnipeg is, it's Winnipeggers that are the ones surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I run into so many people that have, family and business associates come into Winnipeg that haven't, you know, it's almost kind of like the frog, the, you know, the analogy, the frog, if you probably, for anyone that's in the pot, it, or, yeah, yeah okay. the pot. And, and I guess Winnipegers are the ones that are sitting there as we're slowly turning up the temperature. We're not noticing it as much because we see it day in, day out. Mm -hmm. But for someone that maybe hasn't been here in 10 years comes and it's like, wow, well, there's a bunch of cranes there. And wow, that, that thriving, I didn't know you that gallery, that the new Inuit gallery and and all these things that are happening. So they see the change in a much more stark uh, manner than we do that live in and see it every day. So are you guys, is there is it trending upwards that lots of new people are trying to start businesses and things like that? Or is it, has it leveled off or what are some of the we're, trends? We're definitely seeing more entrepreneurship in particular amongst younger mm. uh, entrepreneurs, and, and that's very encouraging. We know that women, for example, are starting businesses at a, at a higher clip than, than men are. Um, but I think there is a worrying trend nationally that we're seeing declining rates of entrepreneurship. And I think a part of that is because the risk associated. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a definite comfort from knowing I'm going to go work for company X and I'm going to have... Um, this salary and these benefits and I don't have to worry to the same extent if I would it's this my business if and if I don't have clients uh, I'm not paying the right. bills uh, that should be something that I think as a community we we need to wrap our minds around because mm -hmm. a lot of the quality of life that we have is funded by mm -hmm. the public or the private sector um, the tax income that is derived from that but as well even just you know when we talk about quality of life Companies contribute so much to a community's sense of self and the various activities that define that community. What's one of the things that defines Manitoba the most? Socials. Yeah, for right? sure. The Manitoba yeah. social. For anyone listening, if you've <laughs> ever been to one or you have uh, held one, think of which companies you approached for those social prizes. They're all local companies. Yeah. And they're the ones giving... Uh, not asking for anything in return, but it's it's a Manitoba thing. And again, 
something that defines us, made it possible in large part because of the the private sector. Yeah, it's that sense of community, right? And let's talk more, let's dive into the, the, the marriage of, you know, commerce and philanthropy or whatever you want to call it. Like you, you just said that nowadays when people are asking about a company, it's what are your values? What do you support? How are you doing this? So like, how do you navigate the world of profit on one hand, but also social impact on the other? And, and a lot of new entrepreneurs are building that into their business model, essentially, right? So how, how, how do you encourage new um, entrepreneurs to think about that? And it, how important is that for the chamber, like understanding social impact as well? It, it's, it's vital to the chamber. It's vital to our members. Um, but it's, it's also, we have to recognize our private sector is a reflection of the community because the private sector is led by people from the community. Mm -hmm. So as our community evolves, so too does our private sector. Was social impact a huge issue in the 1940s? Probably not. There was obviously some philanthropic effort, but not to the same uh, magnitude and importance that it is today. Why? Because the people leading those companies, the people working for those companies, they've changed their perspectives. What their needs are has fundamentally shifted. Also knowledge, right? We, for example, what is the environmental impact of your company? 40 years ago, was that something that... Not even a question. It wasn't a question. Yeah. But we know that we're in a climate uh, change scenario uh, and action is required. So people are calling on government. So they're also calling on the private sector for that. But, uh, you know, in my position, one of the things that I don't want to say frustrates me, but is somewhat confounding is there's this notion that... If government, for example, does something that benefits the business climate, reduces taxes, for, for argument's sake, just for simplicity's sake, that it comes at a cost to the social fabric of our community. And conversely, if government makes investments in health and education, um, that it'll somehow dampen the business climate because it may require additional investments and so forth. And the reality is that has never been the case. And fundamentally business success and the success of our community are interdependent you can't have one without the other point to me a successful community that has a floundering business community right point to me to a community that's doing really well in business or uh, sorry yeah but you know uh, let's look at detroit for example you know uh, during when it was really, really struggling, the community was literally burning. Right. And even if some of the businesses were doing okay there, I don't think anyone would say that would be a model that you would want to, uh, mm -hmm. to, to replicate for your own community. So, you know, it's something we see in our members. When we do strategic planning, um, I remember doing strategic planning in the 90s, and definitely the business issues were top of mind. When we meet with members, you know, what are some of the things? Oh, it's capital, it's taxation, it's labor, all sorts of things. The last few strategic plans I've been involved with with the chamber, it is astounding, and it's it's not specific to a sector or size of business, but the vast majority of people, when we engage them in that strategic planning process, the first question out of their mouth is not, what is the chamber going to do to assist me with the business climate? It's actually, what, do you, what can we do to collectively and as a chamber to fuel the well-being of our community overall. Yeah, uh, the mindset is so has shifted so much, and the people leading our private sector are committed to it. Again, when you live here and your kids are going to school here, and your employees live here, you you just know it's it's not just a, a right business decision; it's just the right decision. Yeah, there used to be a disconnect between you know people who are running businesses and focusing on that and not really understanding both their impact, but also the impact of a healthy community around them, because then you have more customers that can, you know, it's all intertwined. But, but, but also at the same time, you know, profit gets sort of a, is almost like a dirty word. Exactly. I was at a, a consultation around National Pharmacare and listening to some of the people around the table very clearly did not feel that profit was something to be celebrated. And I just reminded the people around the table, how did you get here? Well, I, I, I drove. Okay. Who built your car? Okay. You took the bus. Okay, great. Um, so you took a road. Great. Uh, who helped fund that road? Yes, residential rate payers, but also business contributes to that. So profit makes a lot of what government invests in possible. Because fundamentally, if every single business did not profit, 
our community would not have the resources to be able to invest in the things that we care about. So um, I think what's shifted isn't that we don't care about profit. It's how do we go about generating that profit as sustainably, as responsibly, and as value-based as possible. How do you navigate that disconnect, though? Because you definitely hear businesses that are focused on profits. You, you it, it's, de- it's demonized, for sure. But then you also have the cynicism of... If a business, like, look at something international like uh, Tom's Shoes or Ten Tree or something, you know, it's built in that they have uh, a social impact and they, they give back with every single in, with every single transaction. But there's the cynicism of, like, yes, but how much of that is marketing versus actual want to do good, you know? There's a lot of mistrust for companies that use social impact as a marketing um, method. Yep. And so how do you... Um, educate your members and how do you kind of navigate this world when there's so much potential cynicism for those actions when they just want to do good in most cases? Not to oversimplify it, but I think part of the big part of the solution can be found in how the problem was created. Why are people cynical about business? Well, part of the reason is you get a story like Enron or you know, Exxon Valdez and, and, and these, you know, pointing to U.S. examples, and there are Canadian as well, but SNC-Lavalin, right. right? You know, there's, there's definitely examples where people read and hear about, and it either starts a stereotype or fuels a pre-existing belief that, yeah, see, that's just, you know, confirmation bias. I'll, right. I'll gravitate to the things that reaffirm what I already hold to be true. As a chamber, I think our job is getting the stories, the unheralded Mm. stories of what companies are doing out there. Um, You know, when you take a look at the United Way, you take a look at uh, the Winnipeg Foundation and and other groups that are just doing amazing work in our community. Um, Dig a little bit deeper. You'll find a number of companies. I do think what thing that works against us is uh, our, our prairie humbleness. It's like, ah, I don't want, I don't want a lot of attention. I don't want to, because people don't want to be accused of doing it for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. I'd rather do it knowing that it's going to support and do some good work. Uh, and rather than get the acknowledgement of that, which could potentially work against it because there's going to be cynicism, people just do it anonymously. And, and some people just don't want the fanfare. It's just part of baked into our Manitoba DNA that says... You know, do good, and and that's that should speak for itself. So, you, do you think the cynicism is justified, or do you think it's overblown, or do you think, um, you know, people aren't giving these groups a fair shake? I think people need to be open to challenging their preconceived notions and be open to the idea that companies do care, and that when they do either give. Um, financially to causes or support their employees in doing volunteer work or a host of other activities that they're doing it because they actually believe and you know there's always going to be that one example that emerges where some something happened and you know can fuel the cynicism but let's try to remember that for every one of those instances that emerge there's a hundred positive stories that you haven't heard that doesn't make the front page it doesn't who would pick up a newspaper or read or listen to a podcast that just says everything is hunky-dory fine no complaints life is good chances are probably wouldn't sell good point yeah (laughs) no kidding i think part of it too is that we're 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 amid the transition right We're, we're kind of going from a place where profits or the, you know, the bottom line is all that matters to now, okay, let's look around at the neighborhood where your business is existing. Yeah, you're thriving, but there's, you know, someone on the corner. But also I think we need to, well, I guess I would challenge people to say, how are, how are companies any different than you are in your personal life? You have beliefs, you have causes, you have some very strongly held values and principles, but you all still still have to pay your bills. So, you know, we can talk profit and loss, but in our own individual lives, it's what's our revenue, what's, what's our expenses, and I need to make sure at the end of the month that my expenses don't exceed my revenue, and, but I still want to support X, Y, and Z. Companies are doing the same. They, they got into business to be able to grow, 
provide a product or service and, and do so sustainably over the long term. So profit does matter, but the manner in which we're going about having those conversations, how to derive that, that's changed. Yeah. And you could you could make a make a comparison of like, yeah, you could volunteer 90 hours a week in all your waking moments, but that's not sustainable. So where is the balance that businesses have to find of reinvesting into their communities versus doing what they set out to do and what their purpose is, right? Absolutely. So what are, what are some of the biggest challenges when um, groups come to you and say like, here's what we need help you? I mean, you mentioned um, capital, but yep. let's talk more about the uh, the operating side of things and like, what are they most in need of? Is it social media stuff? Is it like helping telling their stories like we mentioned? Or what are what are the main questions that you're being asked over and over and over. Well, definitely, I already alluded to, the, you know, of course, access to capital and the human... And, and talent. And it's interesting, you know, um, talk to my kids, and we all have iPhones or... Sorry, I should the push the brand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, smartphones, uh, tablets, and everyone's, you know, be it um, Snapchat, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, uh, TikTok, which my kids are trying to teach me. I still don't. Yeah, dating myself. <laughs> um, so we're connected like never before, but I would argue we're more disconnected than ever before. Gone is the ability to engage in meaningful relationship. There's a sense that if I communicate with you via my smartphone or otherwise, that's a relationship. No, no, that's just exchange of information. And we're seeing more and more companies coming that, they recognize the need for, yeah, I need to network, but networking's changed. It is fundamentally about relationship. I know a number of companies that I talk to in particular that are looking to expand into the Asian market, China and pre predominantly. And, and there's some, the ones that have struggled are the ones that go over there thinking, I've got a winning product and service, best price, best service, I'm gonna blow them away. They get there and they, they flounder. And part of the reason is they, they <sighs> They want to know you before they do business with you. And you even think in your own personal life, like if you have a financial advisor, do you just go with the per? Oh, it's a relationship. You want to trust the person you, uh, in, in any of your dealings in your personal life, it's, it's a trust-based relationship that needs to be nurtured over time. So that's definitely one of the things we're seeing more and more from our members is how do I connect meaningfully, authentically, with another person so that the basis of the business relationship is first and foremost a trust-based relationship. Yeah, as opposed to, you know, now the technology isn't a replacement for that handshake, look someone in the eye conversation and, and relationship, but it kind of can facilitate those perhaps. Do you think far too many people now are using the phones and the tech and, and the social media as they're thinking, oh, you know, I've got you know, I've got a hundred friends on Instagram, but it, how many of those are true connections, right? Exactly. You know, what was the big rush, right? Like people, hey, I want to get as many followers on whatever platform. Well, great. Uh, you know, I have a couple thousand followers on my Twitter account. I can't imagine every single one of them would say I am deeply deep friends with Lauren Remler. <laughs> right. um, I'd like to think I'd have that many friends, but the reality is probably about 0.001% of that. Um, so yeah, uh, I think we've, we've allowed ourselves to believe that uh, quantity has replaced quality. Yeah, that's well said. Um, so how do you uh, encourage businesses then to pursue that? And how, what kinds of opportunities do you give them for these real connections? One of the things a lot of people join the chamber for is the networking, mm -hmm. growing their business. Uh, we do a uh, hundred events a year, everything from the state of the city, state of the province, our two biggest events, 1,200 plus people in attendance. Uh, those ones generate a lot of attention. Of course, uh, we were pleased to welcome both former President Barack Obama mm -hmm. and former First Lady Michelle Obama. Yeah, 15,000 plus people at the MTS. Probably not a, a great location for meaningful personal <laughs> dialogue with, with the other 14,999, but nevertheless. Um, so we create the, the platforms for people to connect. But one of the things that we've had to change is in you know, maybe 30 years ago, you could create those events and it's almost kind of like 
You know, the idea when you're teaching someone to swim, the old thing, throw them in the water, they'll learn to swim one way or the other. Now it's, okay, we want to create these, but we're going to provide programs to teach you how to network. So we do, a, for example, a networking 101. No cost, but, and, and keep it very small, maximum 25 people. Uh, every Since we've launched it, uh, full max attendance, exceeding max attendance, every single one. And it's really not just how do you present your business card and you know how do you talk to someone you don't really know and your 30-second elevator pitch. It's all about authentic relationship building, you know, starting with knowing who you are mm-hmm. and really what you're about and what values you espouse and you want people to know about you. And then, um, you know, other elements that contribute to meaningful relationships. So the we're trying to, through our programming and services, facilitate quality and then provide the opportunity, the quantity side through our events. It's weird to think of the, you know, Chamber of Commerce, let's say the Chamber of Commerce 100 years ago or however long ago, no one would have thought you'd be talking about vulnerability and connection and the human interaction, right? It's mostly, it's bit business is the antithesis of those things or in people's minds, right? Yeah. But now you're understanding and people are understanding and consumers are understanding and business owners are understanding. I'll challenge you that just on a little bit in that, you know, I think business has always been about relationship. Where you shop, where you tend to, you know, the businesses you, what's the word I'm looking for? You patronize. You're, patronize, you're, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. Why? Why do you choose those ones? Is it purely cost? Or, hey, I shop at this place because I know the owner, or they're in my community and I want to support. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that live in Osborne Village, and they support the Osborne Village businesses because they're neighborhood businesses. Yeah. But do you think that that has been uh, the way it's, you know, I, I feel like I'm from a small town, so I knew my dad had a, you know, little sporting goods store on Main Street. So you, I understand the value of that, but I also think with the Amazons and the global push a button, you get a thing delivered to you. We've, we've, we've as a society, kind of moved away from those hand handshake business deals. I support this person. You know, the Walmart's coming in. I think that's on the way out, and I think the next generation is sort of returning to an era of knowing the butcher and the baker, and you know, you go down the street and order all your things like mm-hmm. that. But I think the reason I have that mindset in my mind is because we've allowed certain um, industries to thrive the Walmarts, the Amazons, the things which provide incredible services, but it takes away from that human interaction too. So that's why I'm, I, I, I have a hard time melding the two. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're seeing more and more of the trend, you know, shop local. Yeah. Uh, local. Eat local by, you know, everything is, we care about where our food comes from now. Whereas, well, and I love going to a restaurant where they say, you know, the hundred, hundred mile, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess hundred kilometer, uh, radius menu. Uh, yeah. people want to really know that local connectivity. And yes, there are still people that shop on Amazon. Um, but even then, you know, we're seeing showcasing as a, as a real trend in, in retail where people are going into, you know, their local footwear place to try on the shoe, get a look at it. Thank you. Go on to Amazon, save two bucks mm-hmm. and ship it. Uh, and again, we get it to the extent that people, you know, we're all trying to stretch our dollar farther. And if people feel that I can go on Amazon and, and save $2, you can't fault people for that. We're all trying to be as efficient with our dollars as possible. But I do think it's cyclical. I mean, the, the cycle may look different, but it all go, I, I do believe it, it is cycling. And we'll see, and we're seeing that push to people saying, no, you know what? I can still do the Amazon thing once in a while, but my, I'm making a choice predominantly um, to be. And it's interesting because we ask companies, what are your values in that? So mm-hmm. question back to consumers, what are your values? Right. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, you, they say vote with your dollars, right? If you support a company that is ethically questionable, then who, how can you justify criticizing, a, you know, whatever other company? One of the best pieces of advice I got, someone said, you know, people will tell you what their priorities are all the time. My priorities are my family. My priorities are my business. My priorities are this. And someone said, you really, really want to know honestly where someone's priorities are? Uh, Take a look at their bank statement and take a look at their calendar. That'll tell you what their priorities are. Because where you spend your time and your money, Mm -hmm. the two most valuable things, um, 
is are your priorities. And now I think part of it too is with the access to all the information, now we know what companies are doing. Now we understand like if they're outsourcing a lot of their whatever, you know, there's a plethora of potential landmines out there of companies doing some shady things. So like, do you think it's just because now we have the access and now things are out in the open and, you know, maybe we don't support X company because they do Y business practice anymore. And like consumers are smarter. Absolutely. And they're asking the questions beyond just price and service. It really is. Do I, we mentioned it earlier about employees sitting down, you know, the nature of interviews has changed. It's not just you interviewing the client or the prospective candidate. It's the candidates really interviewing the company. Do I want to work for this organization? Do they espouse the very things that I hold true and dear? And and consumers are doing the same with, uh, ideally, we'd like them to say, if you believe, you know, supporting local is critical, then back that up with, with action. And more and more are. I'm not taking anyone to task on that. So where are you seeing the trends from now and in in another 10 years of how consumers approach business and how business owners are reacting or being proactive when it comes to checking the boxes that people are going to require now? You know, it's interesting because people always say, well, you know, what's the world going to look like in 10 years? And when we talk to the government about human resources and and labor market demand, and the question always back is, well, what is business? What are the needs? And even a year from now, I'd say it's it's hard to say because the speed to which the world is changing, it's it's almost impossible to anticipate what the need is going to be a year from now. Never mind five, ten years. The world's changing too fast. What well, I saw one stat. Uh, what was it? A hundred years ago, if you could quantify the world's knowledge, it doubled every what hundred years or something. And now it's like every what four days or something along the right. lines of that. That the speed to which uh, changes coming at us is just remarkable. So companies are operating in that world where it's it's change. It's it's not even managing change anymore. I remember in the '90s, early 2000s, that was the change management was the buzz, yeah. the buzzword. How do we manage this change? Yeah. And now it's about being a catalytic agent, driving the change. Because at least if you're driving the change, mm. you're somewhat, you know in keeping with that change and that trend and so forth. So um, that's why it's, you know, like where, where do we see it going in 10 years? Really on the companies is to the ones that are, are driving that change. But um, I think the trend definitely will continue to be around the value-based, uh, both as employees, companies, consumers. People want to feel good about where they work, where they spend their money, and the expectation of companies will only increase be the change that you want to see in the world. I think some smart guy said that once. Well, and also even just the nature of wellness. Mm. Um, 10, 15 years ago, wellness wasn't an employee assistance program. Now it's mindfulness. It's it, it's such a, a broader concept than just the traditional view of it. And there's so much more attention paid to wellness by, by companies today. Again, because they recognize, and people can be cynical about it, the greatest strength of any organization is the people. I mean, there's people own companies, the large ones, the small ones, and everyone in between. I think it's, it's yeah, people. That's the disconnect is that, you know, you, you see or think of a corporation as this faceless, nameless entity. And then you don't really understand that someone started that business. Some, at some point there was one guy who said, you know what, I'm going to make a widget or whatever it happens to be. Right. So we kind of disconnect ourselves from, unless it's small business, but at what point does it become faceless you know like when you make a million dollars a year or you know like how do you how do you maintain those personal person-to-person interactions when you may might not actually have those on a day-to-day basis it's difficult but i remind i I don't think a company ever becomes faceless because at the end of the day there's still you know the corporate leadership be it a board of directors the c-suite and directors and and so forth it's people making decisions it's not Artificial right, intelligent right. CEO yeah. making, you know, running an algorithm and making a decision based on that. These are people, mm-hmm. human beings that are making good choices and bad choices. And companies are not faceless. Yeah. 
I think that's probably my personal biggest challenge with some of the you know social issues that we have. It's like these damn corporations, right? And but you know one of the challenges I think for companies and, and and it's it's a legitimate challenge is when you think of the person you're you're starting a business by and large, unless maybe you're a social enterprise, which is very much we're doing this business. The primary reason is not profit. It is a social good. But for a for-profit business, you're starting because I, I think I've got an expertise, I've got a product, and I want to build this business to provide that. The reason you got into business was not environmental, you know, uh, climate change action or, or trying to save um, force. Like, it, it's not the social values per se that are driving you to start your business. So you have companies that at their core, they were started for economic reasons. And now the whole context of social values and good have been injected into the conversation. So it's, you know, when you think of people that have gone through business schools, they just weren't trained. That wasn't part of the business plan. How do you put together a business plan? How do you find capital? Where do you get your, your labor force? Uh, process mapping and management and all these things. Um, so business is trying to adapt, and I think they're doing a great job of it. But it is a whole new way of thinking that has to be layered over top the traditional approach to business. And it's challenging. Yeah. But we're, we're getting there. And that, that marriage has always been there. But now we're talking about it and understanding it. And business owners are understanding, like, I can't have a successful business without a thriving community. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yep. But operationalizing the social good. That's what I'm saying. Like mm. it's easy to sit there and think, here's my business plan. Here's my market. Here's how I'm going to get my goods to market, market that product in that market. Um, now it's like, Oh, okay. What's our environmental fr- footprint in that process? Mm-hmm. Um, are we supporting in that market, a third world dictator? Right. Yeah. Or which, you know, gets out in social media in a heartbeat. Uh, and that also changes, uh, harken back, you know, some of the cynicism I do put, I'm a big believer in the traditional media sources because there, of course, is a requirement for some due diligence. I mean, how, how easy is it to post something on Twitter and it starts to go viral? No one's fact checking. Mm-hmm. Even Wikipedia, I mean, to some degree, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen some people source Wikipedia. I'm like, you know, <laughs> that could be anyone. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I know that it's somewhat more vetted, I guess. But uh, social media, if it gets out there, yeah, it, whether it's true or not is almost irrelevant. Yeah, the world has changed, and if we don't, if businesses don't change with it, they're not going to survive. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's why it's how can we drive it as opposed to be reactive yeah. to what's happening proactive yeah. yeah great well i don't want to take up too too much of your time we could talk about this all day it's a, it's a great conversation at the end of our time though uh we cut we have a segment called just because where i'm gonna ask you seven quick questions i don't want you thinking too too hard about it but i mean just give us your best answers sound good okay okay great question one what is the actual first cause you actually ever remember caring about hmm mid 80s ethiopian famine live aid Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bob yeah. Geldof, Sir Sir Geldof. Now, uh, I remember that really was something in our school was was critically important. Uh, we had school assemblies around it, trying to explain. It's interesting, and and I hope people understand when I say this. Um, I remember asking one of my teachers. I went to a very small school, and I was taught by um, monks. Wow, <laughs> there's a whole story there, but mm-hmm. Society of Marianists. And I just remember asking because it was what grade grade nine, I think. And I asked a question in a very simple fashion. Okay, clearly there is a massive famine going on there. And we're trying to feed people that I'm worried they will in three days starve to death. Like it it almost seems like I was lost and, and like disappointed saying, are we really making a difference if they're, they're going to starve. Like, it does, just doesn't feel like we, we're doing enough. And my teacher said something that sticks to me to this day. It says, if you could stop the world right now and quantifiably measure the amount of goodness in it, and if you feed a starving person one day, and they do not know uh, starvation, the pangs of hunger for that day, and you measure that, isn't the world a better place by just that much? He says, that's all anyone can do is that 
that try to make the world a better place in that little piece. And that stuck with me. I mean, that was grade nine. That was, and it's kind of, in my, in my way of thinking, it's kind of defined how I've gone about my career is saying, I might not cure cancer, but by what I can do, if I help one entrepreneur stave off going bankrupt and they survive and they're able to put their kids through post-secondary because of it, I actually have made the There's world. ripples. There's ripples. Yeah, for sure. I think of, I, one of my tenants is make every interaction, every, every room, every experience you have, leave it better off than when you found it. Yeah. You know, and that's a kind of the similar concept yeah. of what and you're And then about. You, you know, if everyone did that, seven billion people on this planet, you know. It'd be a good world. It would be. Question two, if money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all, what's the first thing you would do in support of, what is your current cause? And in support of, is, I don't know if it's arts and culture or what, but what would you do? Oh, there's, there's a, a number of issues. The one that I'm, I'm very passionate about, though, is the cause of immigration and diversity inclusivity. Um, again, at an early age, uh, I grew up in a neighborhood. Our next-door neighbors were uh, new Canadians from Dominican Republic, um, my parents' best friends, I just grew up really valuing what newcomer Canadians bring to our community, the perspectives, their experiences. Um, but it's it's one thing to, you know, welcome people to the country with immigration numbers and so forth, but how are we including? How are we including them into the fabric that is our community? And being open to, with each person coming, it, it shapes that fabric. It, it, it adjusts. It evolves. And be comfortable doing that. If money, logistics, and politics were no issue at all, you know, I'd, I'd almost like people that are opposed to increasing immigration. Challenge them. You know, the old saying, walk a mile in someone's shoes. Like, spend, spend a few months in a refugee camp. Or try to live in a country ripped by ethnic violence and, and uh, a government that's bombing its own people, like, and, and understand and, and, and see that these individuals are not coming here for all the negative stereotypes you think. They are doing what you are trying to do, provide a better life for themselves and their children and the generations that follow. Um, yeah, if, if, if reality were suspended for a moment, I could do anything. I'd kind of like to do that. Nothing nothing replaces that human interaction, right? As soon as you meet someone that's different than you that you may have preconceived notions about, it's almost like that just evaporates and you realize they just want their kids to do well and their uh, roof over their head. And, you know, it's not, it's not all these boogeyman stories that you hear parroted. It, it really, uh, not to belabor it, but, you know, fundamentally our differences are fueled predominantly by misunderstanding. I remember reading mm -hmm. uh, a while back that most married couples or couples arguments, the first 30 seconds of the argument is about the core matter of whatever the d difference is over. Everything after that is based on misunderstanding of what the person has said. So I remember in my own marriage, <laughs> my wife hated it at first. We're still happily married 22 years. Congratulations. But I used to say to her back, because I tr started practicing this, she'd say something and I'd go, okay, just so I understand, is this what you mean? She thought I was mocking her at first. I'm like, no, no, or be I condescending just or something, yeah. want to make sure I understood. I seek to understand before I seek to be understood. Mm. And it's amazing how many arguments ceased because I'd go, and she'd go, yeah, that's what I meant. Or no, that's not what I meant. I meant this. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no problem then. Right. And it's like, oh. Yeah. So again, just understanding someone's perspective, the, their lived experiences, um, this kind of bleeds into the question three then like what is that is that the biggest misunderstanding surrounding the immigration issue or what is if if that's not it i think there's this idea that we tend to focus the biggest problem is we for some reason just gravitate to the differences and i mean these are superficial differences skin color sexual orientation gender um education levels you know just superficial things that yeah you know, we're different from one another. But the one thing that is the tie that binds is we're all human. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was, my kids were like seven and nine and, you know, racism and, and, and so forth was an issue I wanted to tackle with them. But I'm thinking, how do you, no how do you <laughs> connect with a seven and nine-year-old to talk about racism without getting it too heavy? And at the time, zombies were really, really 
big. Like Walking Dead kind of area. Yeah, all yeah. that. My kids loved zombies. They played the zombie games. So I thought, okay, this might sound really hokey to the listeners going, really, he did this? So I said to them, I said, imagine, boys, because I have two boys. At the time I sat them down, I said, imagine it's the zombie apocalypse. You're alone. You haven't seen a, another living human being in six months. And you run around, you're being chased, and a door opens, and there is a young indigenous woman. And she waves you over. Come, come. And she's, at that precise moment, do you care that she's female? Do you care what her sexual orientation may be? Do you care that she's indigenous? No. You're just bloody well happy to see another living human being. Crisis has a, a, a weird way of just putting aside all the things that is white noise that we allow to dominate the conversation and focus us on the things that truly matter. And it's maddening. It's maddening that we know that and we've seen experience time after time after time. Um, movies play on this. Oh, an alien threatens the, globe, the earth and we all come together and put aside our differences. But we don't do that on a day-to-day -day basis. We allow those petty superficial differences to be points of division and that that's disappointing. And I'll tell you to this day, my kids remember that story. Maybe could have done it a different way, but... It's yeah. a good analogy, though, and it's sort of an analogy. You know, I, I, when you were speaking of it, it reminded me of the days, the days, weeks, months after 9-11, right? And everyone was on the same team. You know, like, you can talk about the politics of the everything aside, but there was a unifying moment, and, and it's weird. It's unfortunate that tragedy has to be the thing that catalyzes that unity. Yeah. But, yeah, it's kind of a human... So wouldn't it be nice if we just recognized that in those instances we were able to do that and then just say, why do we have to wait for a crisis to pull together? Yeah. Like, you know, and think for Manitobans that were around for the flood of 97. Mm. I remember getting on a bus, didn't care who else was on the bus, didn't care which house I was going to. There's just need out there. We Sand, were in crisis. It's time to send back. Get out there, yeah. you know, put put your back into it. And uh, I, I do remember the house I did. It was Ed Schreier's house. <laughs> the bus just went there and I'm like, <laughs> okay. I think that's the former... Premier and <laughs> Governor General. Amazing. All right. But again, didn't, didn't care matter. what his political ideology was or anyone yeah. else on the yeah. bus. You just knew someone was in need. Yeah, we're all on the same team. And it's the human team. You know, it's not yeah. Canada Canadians versus any. It's we're all in this together. Yeah. Yeah. Question four. What is a time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan wasn't necessarily working out for you? <laughs> Every day. Yeah. That, uh, that's a common answer that for people that yeah. I talk to. It's like, when am I not pivoting? But do you have a specific story or moment? Uh, or I don't know if there's a great one, but uh, I was married in uh, 1997. Okay. Remember that? And uh, six months, I had graduated with my master's degree in, nine, in fall of 95, and it was the mid-90s. And as you can imagine, surprisingly, there weren't a lot of jobs for political science, political studies graduates. And I was getting married in six months and unemployed. And that's kind of a crushing sense of, you know, to your pride, to your sense of, is this my future? And I just said, listen, until such time as something comes available in my industry of choice, I'm, I got to pay the bills. And, and so I, I took a, a supervisory position in a call center. And I want to be very clear. Uh, there's nothing, you know, my kids work in retail. I spent a lot of time in retail. I did a lot of physical construction kind of work when I was younger. Uh, there is no job above or beneath anyone. Uh, an honest day's work is an honest day's work. And so, but again, I didn't study to go into that field, but I took the job and, you know, had to pivot because luckily, uh, I think two months before I got married, Shelley Morris, who was president of the chamber at the time, hired me as public affairs manager, and the rest is history. Wow. So it, it all did work out, but I'll say this too, an interesting point. One of the advices someone gave me is, you know, um, everyone says they have principles, but your principles are only truly your principles when they're tested. Mm, yeah, right? yeah. Who are you at your worst? You know, like that's what you... At, or... Well, when it costs you. Right. And that job that I had at the call center, and I won't name the company, 
Um, but the general manager at the time walked into all the supervisors and said, listen, sales are down. We've got to start firing people to motivate them. Okay? Oh, no. And again, there's good practices and bad practices. And it w- was made very clear to all the supervisors, you need to toe the line on this one. Um, I was fired two weeks later because I was the only supervisor that refused to fire anyone. Because on principle, I just said that's offensive. And that's not how you motivate people. You don't motivate people with fear and, and threatening their livelihood. Um, and it cost me. And here, and I'm like, great, now I'm unemployed again, and I'm still, but I wear that as a badge of honor because, and I'm not trying to say, look at me, how wonderful I am. I just point that out. It's like, yeah, you know, I had to pivot there, but then I had a second pivot in there. Do I follow my principles and things that I hold to d- dear, or do I just cling to a job because I'm getting married? Yeah, you can. that's something to point to to say, I mean, that's proof positive of principles as opposed to someone, you know, saying, here's here's a list of the things I believe. That's You, you can't deny that one. And don't get me wrong. We could have a podcast just on all the times when I failed to. <laughs> so uh, let's... <laughs> Well, you mentioned that advice, I mean, advice there, but question five is what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Is that the same principle or is there something else? Um, kind of flows on that. Um, early on, someone had said to me, um, you know, hold to your principles. That's what defines you. That's your compass. And by extension of that, you know, in, you have a choice, reputation or character. Reputation is what others think of you. Generally, it's opinion-based and not by people that really, truly know you. So your reputation is what the general public thinks of you. Your character is who you are. Focus on your character. You control that. Mm. You don't control your reputation. If someone wants to besmirch your reputation, go to social media, say something, and the rest is history. But your character is your core. It's what you are. It's your principles, your values, your beliefs. And get that right if you've got a choice. It's kind of don't worry about how you're perceived. Worry about how you perceive yourself or how you're... Yeah, because at the end of the day, um, reputations fluctuate. Um, and, and really, when you look back on your life, do you worry about what someone that you never met that had no impact on your life thought you were a major jerk? Never met you, has no idea, read one comment you made in response to a, a reporter, and all of a sudden I'm a cold, insensitive jerk that doesn't care about... Uh, the working person. It's You don't know me. You don't <laughs> yeah. know my life story. You don't know. But fine, if that's how you feel, that's your right to. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to worry about my character. Yeah, I like that. I've never thought about the differences of character versus reputation, but yeah, it makes sense. And it kind of, yeah, I like it. Question six. Let's go back in time even further. What advice would you give to your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him right now? Do you remember Eminem when he had the really blonde, blonde hair? I do. Yeah. I'd go back to my 10-year-old self and saying, remember when you were like late 20s, early 30s, you dyed, don't dye your hair blonde to look like Eminem. Amazing. <laughs> that would be one do, big piece of advice. Do pictures of that exist? They do. And, and are uh, they public? Luckily, I'm tracking them down and burning <laughs> them. them. wiped? Yeah. yeah. That's hilarious. Uh, in all seriousness, though, um, it's, it's not a... What advice would I give? And it's actually from a, a, a biblical saying. It's what I believe not verbatim, but what does it profit a, a man or a person if they, gains the, if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? Mm. And that's something that's really stuck with me because I'm thinking, you know, I, um, uh, my son had a tragedy uh, recently. His best friend passed, and I just, you know, we were talking about him, like, in preparation for this, and I just said, if you could have her back, or you could have everything you ever wanted material, you know. And he stopped me. He's like, "Well, that's that's kind of a," I said, "Well, but that's kind of what it means by that. Like, um, what does it profit you if you have all these material possessions, but you've had to forego your principles, your character, and and your soul in order to achieve that? You're you're not rich. You have material things, but you're you're far from rich. So that's something I would remind myself at ten that." You know, it's nice to have things. It's nice to have financial comfort. But don't let that be the defining goal in your life. Um, your soul is the one thing that speaks to your character. And, mm. and, and also enrich your soul with experiences. Um, you know, where I spend my time and money, it's on experiences. Mm-hmm. Don't have the nicest house. Don't have, uh, you know, loads of cars and, and, and things like that. 
Uh, my kids joke about <laughs> how I dress. Apparently, I don't spend a lot on clothing. <laughs> Dad, you look like an old man. I think even if you did, they'd probably still chirp you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so definitely, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? Remind them. Great answer. Last question. Thank you very much for doing this. It's been a great conversation. Um, what do you want to be remembered for? Nothing. And I mean that legitimately. I always jokingly say, be it my last day at any organization or before I retire, uh, there used to be, a, oh, now I'm really dating myself, the Incredible Hulk, the sh TV show where at the end it would be the somber music and he'd walking be in the distance, by walking himself. away. And I just yeah, thought, yeah. what a great way to go out, right? No fanfare because, again, and it does harken back to the comment about reputation versus character. Um, I mean, you want to feel like you've made a, a difference, but I don't worry in terms of legacy um, because that's someone's opinion. Oh, Remillard was amazing at this and that, but I'll be the judge as to whether I moved the needle. I made a, my life positively impacted the world in which I lived. I'll be the judge of that. Uh, others may have different views on it. I want to be remembered as a dad that was there for my kids, not just you know coaching their sports teams, but... You know, I just mentioned the tragedy my son's dealing with, being there for him spiritually, emotionally, as he's going through that. For my wife, I mean, uh, that's private. <laughs> <laughs> and again, for my friends, you know, someone that did more than just the heavy lifting of moving stuff around furniture-wise for them, but heavy lifting to be there for them during their dark times. Those are the things that really matter to me. Um, final comment, there's something that hangs in my office and it, and it really speaks to this, and it, it's to keep me humble. Whether that's successful or not, I'll leave to others. <laughs> um, but it's uh, Ozymandias. I don't know if you're familiar. I am. From Watchmen? Yeah. Or, yeah okay. Well, but the poem itself. Okay, gotcha. Um, where it effectively, you know, this monument to this great leader is wiped out by the sands of time. We can sit there and build monuments. We can do amazing things that people will talk about for 50 years. But the sands of time erode all things. Erode all things. And so legacy things, okay, whatever, that's great. But the sands of time won't erode what I meant to my family and my friends. And the legacy there will be in what kind of parents my two boys will be. Uh, their children, if they have children, their relationships with their friends, that, those are the things the sands of time can't erode. And those are the things that I care about. It's beautiful. It's poetic. What a way to yeah. end it. <laughs> Thank you for your time. This is awesome. It's great to meet you and uh, good luck with everything moving forward. I mean, you've got a lot on your plate at all times, but uh, I think the city's in good hands if you're one of the people who are kind of guiding us forward. Well, thank you very much for having me. I hope it was interesting. I'm sure some people will say, really, zombie <laughs> apocalypse? <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you again to Lauren Remillard from the Winnipeg Chamber for discussing things today. It was uh, an interesting conversation. I learned a lot. I obviously had a lot to say on certain topics, but uh, it's good to get some some perspective on on things that I, you know, Lauren's a guy that I wouldn't get to talk to on an average day. So it's cool to hear that perspective and understand sort of where business people are coming from when it comes to a lot of those uh, issues that we have. If you haven't subscribe to this podcast please do so whether you're listening on itunes spotify google play apple podcasts or on the website um, if you hit the subscribe button it helps us out quite a bit so thank you for your continued support all music on the because and effect podcast has been pr produced and composed by trenton burton you can hear his music at trentonburton.com Special thank you to Robert Zirk for production assistance on the podcast and special thank you to everyone on the Winnipeg Foundation staff for helping out uh, with production and with uh, promotion. I really appreciate it. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation and you can follow us on social media by searching at WPGFDN on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and everywhere. Uh, LinkedIn as well. And you can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on Twitter and Instagram as well. That's all for this week. We will see you next week, same time and same place. And remember, the only person you should try to be better than is the person that you were yesterday. Bye-bye.